Welcome to episode 71 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of Journal of Family Practice, watching a light, beautiful snow coming down outside my window. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. Uh, much of the nation right now is in a deep freeze with lots of snow and ice. So first of all, we hope that you are safe and warm. But the sure sign of spring took place this week. The sweetest four words in the American language, pitchers and catchers report. Spring's <laughs> around the corner. Yeah. Henry, if anyone hasn't noticed by now, is a huge Civil War and baseball fan. He is a, a classic American Americana guy. Um, on this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want all of the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem every day, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters, thousands of interactive decision support tools. You can check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. Reminder that you can get free CME from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. Go to iafp.mclms.net to claim it. This week, we're going to go back to discussing uh, three COVID studies, anticoagulation, uh, novel use of colchicine, and mortality associated with some of these newer mutant strains. I've got the first one, and it's actually written up as a research brief. We've been writing, the three of us, uh, almost daily, uh, 195 of these. So far. I think we're up to 200 so far. This is number 195. You can find them all on the American Family Physician homepage at www.aafp.org AFP. Just scroll down and you can see research briefs, and that's where they're summarized. So every day, you can learn a little bit more about COVID-19. So this was a retrospective cohort study of about 4,300 patients hospitalized with COVID-19 between March and July of 2020 in the VA health system. They compared patients who had an initial dose of prophylactic anticoagulation in the first 24 hours of hospitalization with patients who didn't, and the main outcome was 30-day mortality. They used propensity score matching to adjust for differences between patients, things like comorbidities, tobacco use, medications, lab results. It's a pretty sophisticated analysis. It's not a randomized trial, but it's kind of as close as you can get to one without doing it. Overall, 84% of patients received anticoagulation within 24 hours. Of those getting it, about a third got heparin and about two-thirds got anoxaparin. At baseline, patients receiving early thromboprophylaxis were more likely to have an oxygen saturation less than 93%, uh, tachycardia, fever, but they had fewer comorbidities. So there were differences between groups, and um, those getting early thromboprophylaxis were a bit sicker. In the propensity score matched analysis, once they adjusted for this, the 30-day mortality was significantly lower in the group getting early thromboprophylaxis. Prophylaxis, 14.3 versus 18.7%. That's an NNT of about 23. And so this was in the British Medical Journal um, by uh, Wrench and colleagues in 2021. John? That's an impressive number needed to treat of only 23. I have a couple of questions, though, about adjustments uh, because we know that mortality in hospitalized patients has improved over time as we've gotten better at this. So I'm wondering two things. One, did they account for prone positioning and did they control for time? 
because I wonder if the people with anticoagulation were, were more likely to come into the study later on during that three-month time period. Yeah, that's a good point. And they did not adjust for either of those things. So I, you know, what you're saying is if the people in March had higher mortality and were less likely to get thromboprophylaxis. The people in July had lower mortality because of other things improving and mm -hmm. were, so that certainly, you know, could be part of what's going on because they didn't adjust for those factors. And Nonetheless, I think it's standard of care to use anticoagulation now at any rate. Yeah. And that's why there hasn't been a randomized trial and probably won't be because it's, it's going to be hard to do that kind of a study at this point. Henry? Yeah, so as you pointed out, Mark, this is about as good a job as you can do with a retrospective study. And as, as John hinted, though, you still have a hard time taking into account all of the other potential measured as well as unmeasured confounders. Um, having said that, though, we have lots of data from other settings on how to prevent venous thromboembolic phenomena from, uh, and they're actually incorporated into the American College of Chest Physicians guidelines on managing these um, hospitalized patients. And so some of the other things that we know that are effective in addition to anticoagulation therapy include pneumatic compression stockings and early mobilization. So we have lots of parallel data that makes me confident that these are probably correct and that we probably don't need a randomized trial just for COVID. Yeah. Well, thank you, Henry. Um, I'm going to, this is a little bit of follow-up from last uh, podcast. Um, we talked a little bit about Janus kinase inhibitors, and uh, we looked it up in the authoritative guide, uh, Wikipedia, and apparently it was originally named just another kinase, one and two, since there were a bunch of them that had been discovered. But ultimately, they, they changed to Janus kinase, and that's taken, of course, from the Roman god who was two-faced. That's where we get January, looking back, looking forward. And um, the Janus kinases have two nearly identical phosphate transferring domains. One exhibits kinase activity, the other one negatively regulates kinase activity. So um, that's a, a very appropriate name. So now you know something about Janus kinases and you can brag about it to your friends. Um, Henry, you got the quiz for us? Thank you. Yeah. And that's, that's always fun to, to see how certain traditions evolve and, and how the naming uh, came about. So th this quiz is triggered by my own personal annual bout of winter itching. Which of the following statements about pruritus is true? A, there are many published studies on the best diagnostic approach. B, when accompanied by weight loss or anorexia, anxiety disorders are the likely cause. C, history is the most important factor in figuring out the cause. D, antihistamines rarely help. Stay tuned. Okay, Henry, uh, you're going to tell us about, an, and we've, I think we've discussed this in other contexts as well, but you're going to tell us about an old drug with a new use in COVID-19. And it's not Colchis hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah, colchicine seems to be making a, a bit of a, a comeback. So uh, this study is a report from the Col-Corona study data, and it's taken off of a preprint server. So we have to be careful. It has not yet been peer-reviewed, and some of the final data are likely to change as it goes through the peer review process. They started off with patients who, were, who had COVID, who were not hospitalized, and the the treating physicians did not think that these patients were likely to need hospitalization. 
Nonetheless, they also had to be high risk, have at least one risk factor such as age, obesity, and other comorbid conditions. They could have diagnosed COVID either through clinical means, symptoms and exposure, or with PCR testing. Now, here's one of the annoying parts of the study. They planned to have 6,000 people, but they terminated the study after they had enrolled three quarters of the subjects. And they they gave the reason, not for the usual that we found that we, caught, we were causing way more Uh, more harm than would be ethical or that the benefits were so incredible that it would be unethical to withhold effective treatment. They got it sounded like they just kind of got tired. They stopped because of logistic issues related to maintaining a central call center, as well as the cop out of, we want to make sure that healthcare providers get the study data in a timely fashion. It turns out that the study was funded by a blend of foundation and government grants. So it's possible that they had a limited budget and it, the recruitment might have gone slower. And as a result, they had to make some, some other logistical changes. Nonetheless, when they looked at the 30-day outcome of death or hospitalization for COVID, it turns out that there was a slight reduction, but that was not statistically significant. And this is where terminating a study early can sometimes shoot you in the foot. Uh, it was about it was just under five percent for the co- uh, colchicine treated patients, and just under six percent for those who are on placebo. But if they restricted the and oh by the way the differences were similar for um, each of the individual um, outcomes. If they restrict their outcome analysis to just those who had a confirmed PCR test result, it turns out that the data the same magnitude four and a half versus six percent, but it was became statistically significant barely. So there's some statistical flipping here that I think is probably a function of early termination. To me, the the real world application though is that many of us are going to have patients with symptoms and exposures and we're going to make decisions without necessarily having a a PCR test result. And so that's why I put more stock into the the combined um, outcome. Oh, by the way, there was this annoying problem of pulmonary emboli. Um, A half percent of the colchicine-treated patients uh, developed pulmonary emboli compared with 0.1%. And so that would translate into to a number needed to harm of about 244. So small but real adverse effect here that could be, really make a, a, a big difference in the outcomes of, our, of those patients. Mark. Yeah. So um, th- uh, regarding the pulmonary embolism, I did look at the uh, large trial that had uh, about 6,000 patients in it that was published in the New England Journal last year. This was using colchicine for patients with stable coronary artery disease, not COVID-19. And it found some benefit, but it, they actually, they specifically did look at thromboembolism and pulmonary embolism and did not find a difference between those two groups. So, you know, this might be just a uh, coincidence, but it's, and they did look at, you know, a number of outcomes. Um, it is a little bit worrisome and um, particularly in a group that is, these are patients who were not yet hospitalized and, um, you know, are presumably somewhat lower risk as a result. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not rushing to use this, I, I would say. I mean, it's, it's sort of meh in terms of the balance mm-hmm. between the benefits and the harms. Uh, John? But it's one the- of the few things that we have that we can manage for outpatients. 
Yes, I feel the same way. It's not really an impressive result. My fear is that something like this will get in the lay press and all of a sudden we'll have a new wonder drug for treating COVID based on this very limited data and a number needed to treat that approaches 100 at least. So um, yeah, seems like it would be reasonable to use it. Remember, a fair number of people don't tolerate colchicine. On the other hand, they'll get diarrhea and, and feel bad. But uh, it's it's something, I guess, to consider. Yeah, and maybe um, there might be a little bit more. You know, these were high-risk patients, so remember that. So if you are going to use it, remember mm. it's only in high-risk patients, um, and it was only in outpatients who had not yet been hospitalized. So uh, right. keep that in mind. If you are thinking about using this in your patients, the number needed to treat to prevent one death, if that had been statistically significant, was around 500. Okay, um, let's see. We have a little follow-up from last month's episode. Um, Henry, did you want to tell us about this? Yeah, John asked. So the, we had a, a a poem on restoration of fertility after discontinuation of uh, contraceptives, and John asked uh, for the data on those women who were using natural methods. And so it turns out when I went back to the study, the authors don't report the actual pregnancy rates at six months or 12 months for the women who had been using natural contraception. But based on the data that they provided, I was able to extrapolate at one year that roughly 44% of the women using natural contraception became pregnant, which is, was comparable to what the net pool was. Uh, when they estimated the fecundability ratio, uh, it came out about the same as it was for most of the other forms of contraception, with the exception of, if you recall, the, the women who were using hormonal IUDs had the highest fecundability ratio, and those who were getting um, hormone injections had the lowest ratio. So, so this was comparable to oral contraceptives and the like. Thanks for the clarification, Henry. Okay, um, John, it's your turn. You're going to tell us a little bit about mortality rates and some of these new strains. Yes, there's been a lot in the news about these newer strains and with dire warnings about increased mortality. So I've been wondering if there is actually any data behind those claims. I did a little searching and found out that there have been several not published studies but one author did summarize four different studies in uh, BMJ. And so we do have some data now, BMJ online. So here, here's what we have. This is about the B117 variant. The several U UK government-sponsored analyses of COVID-19 mortality data in the UK does suggest that the infection with this strain may result in higher mortality. So here are the studies. In one study... 384 of 2,583 deaths were due to the B117 strain, uh, giving a relative hazard of death for that strain within 28 days of 1.35, and the 95% confidence interval comes close to one but doesn't cross it, so it does suggest a higher mortality rate. There was another case control analysis of community testing data, which they linked to mortality data. In that study, they found a mortality hazard ratio of 1.91, so a bit higher. Once again, 95% uh, confidence interval does not cross one, and the lower limit was 1.35. Yet another study, this was a matched cohort analysis of 
nearly 15,000 people compared to 15,000 who were infected with the original strain. So there were about 15,000 in the B117 group and 15,000 in the other. There were 104 deaths, that's 0.2% in the B117 group compared to 65 deaths, that's 0.1 in the control group. Again, a mortality ratio of increase, 1.65. The 95% confidence interval, again, doesn't cross one. So that's that's an absolute difference if we look at that of 0.1%, which would be one per thousand in that particular study. Now, finally, there was a hospital-based case control study. So these were sicker patients, and the risk of death in the COVID group with the B117 strain was not statistically increased, although the odds ratio was 0.6, which actually uh, couldn't exclude then an excess mortality rate of up to 69% when you look at the confidence intervals. So these data are not strong data, but they are fairly suggestive that this new strain is uh, slightly more lethal than the other strains. Uh, So there is cause to worry. There's data to support it. Uh, Although the risk ratios look relatively high, they're not astronomical. And the absolute differences, as you saw in that one study, was was one per thousand. So something to pay attention to. uh, But I mean, there's not much we can do about it. Another study that we'll present later on talks about the spread of this strain in the U.S., which became the dominant strain in the UK over the course of about two months. So it didn't take long because it's about 40% more contagious. And some believe that this could happen in the United States. So stay tuned in a couple of months and we'll see if this strain takes over the infections in the US. So as we've heard on the TV, again, it's kind of a race between these mutant strains and immunization. Henry. This is a re- sorry. This yeah. This is a recurring theme that we've talked about. That um, it'll take us a year or two after the pandemic is over to completely sort things out. In the meantime, we are in the midst of it, trying to make good decisions based on the information that is available. As you were talking, I uh, was reflecting on a. Uh, one of the talking head shows where they had a uh, a researcher who s- claims that at, through their own genomic analyses here in the U.S. that we're also seeing spontaneous mutations arising here of our own. So, um, so this is a shrewd and wily virus, a little bit like influenza in terms of the antigenic drift that is likely to occur. As when I first started hearing it's about, a, yeah. Yeah. So when I first started hearing about this, my first question was, well, if, is this increased mortality just really a reflection of a mass effect? If it's more contagious, more people get sick as a result of more people getting sick, more people are going to have complications and the like. But these data suggest that there probably is something to it, but it's more complicated because those hospitalized patients, if you looked at it, they were, if, if you accept that odds ratio of 0.6, it means that there was actually something protective in those hospitalized patients compared to the rest. So I, so I, I have a feeling we're still trying to figure this out. 
Yeah, I was just looking at uh, some <clears throat> news reports, and yesterday there was a report in the New England Journal, basically an in vitro study where they found. Um, and th- here, let me read the headlines first: Moderna vaccines and Pfizer vaccine protect against new coronavirus variants. The headline from that was the Mercury News from the U.S. News and World Report: Pfizer Moderna vaccines less effective against South African COVID variant, and they're both correct. They, it is somewhat less effective but still looks effective enough. And uh, it's just kind of funny how one wanted to spin it negatively and one positively. Um, But uh, it does look like, at least just based on 15 patients uh, in vitro samples, that you still make neutralizing antibodies that are effective against the variant, but uh, early days, as, as Henry says. So let's see, what is next? Next, we get to hear from Henry again about the quiz. So the quiz asked, which of the following statements about itching or pruritus is true? A, there are many published studies on the best diagnostic approach. B, when accompanied by weight loss or anorexia, anxiety disorders are the most likely cause. C, history is the most important factor in figuring out the cause. D, antihistamines rarely help. Well, once again, I used Essential Evidence Plus as my source for the answer to this quiz. Often, pruritus is caused by new exposures such as medications, soaps, detergents, and the like, or just dry skin. There's very little research, actually, on the best diagnostic approach, but most guidelines suggest that if the history is unenlightening or if measures that you take based on that initial history fail to provide relief, then you should order tests like a TSH, a CBC, glucose, creatinine, hepatitis, serology, and HIV. Of course, if the initial history suggests something more concerning, such as a patient with weight loss and anorexia, you should order appropriate tests much earlier in the process. Uh, Finally, the initial management of paritis consists of cool compresses, keeping cool, using emollients, taking short, tepid showers, and patients should avoid soaking and avoid using uh, perfumed soaps and antibacterial soaps, for example. Antihistamines are the first line to managing paritis. Uh, Diphenhydramine or Benadryl is cheap but sedating, so it might be best if you use that at bedtime. Um, Cetirizine is less sedating but a bit more expensive. And then there are some adjuncts to simple measures, uh, such as um, H2 receptor blockers, Montelukast, and doxepin. But the correct answer is C. History is the most important piece. Oh, by the way, my itching usually resolves if I can get to a warm or humid climate. So maybe there is something about being a snowbird. <laughs> yeah, you Henry, are. There uh, is... he's, he's angling for a visit to to Georgia. I think <clears throat> it is true that when I was practicing in Michigan, you know, we get all these patients coming in in the middle of the winter with Michigan skin and that dry, itchy skin, and right. I never see a tire <laughs> in the, in the <laughs> no. humid, rainy uh, winters that we have here. We never see that, so it's kind of interesting. Okay, uh, John, tell us about uh, a, a really good book that you want to recommend to our listeners. Yes, this is a book that's uh, written and published recently, written by one of our colleagues in family medicine, Jim Mould. And the book is called Goal-Oriented Care, Helping Patients Achieve Their Personal Health Goals. In this, he describes, uh, I think, a somewhat unique approach to primary care that focuses very explicitly on the outcomes that the patients want from their health. In the poems we present, we try to focus on what we call patient-oriented evidence that matters, 
But we tend to define what matters as the health outcomes we think are important for patients like disability, death, et cetera. Dr. Mould takes this concept a step further to individualize what matters to each patient as we see them, such as living long enough to see my granddaughter graduate from college, and that actually becomes a health goal. This new book is a sequel to his first book, which was Achieving Your Personal Health Goals, written for a lay audience. This new book is directed to us, primary care physicians. I think we all strive to help patients achieve their personal health goals, but Jim's approach makes this very explicit. I highly recommend the book, and it may change the way that you practice. Thanks, John. And I just wanted to say I, we really appreciate our listeners and um, we want to hear from you. Um, we don't get paid to do this. We do this out of um, just the, a love of uh, the topics and uh, the enjoyment of uh, talking with each other and uh, every other week. And uh, But we would love to hear from you if you have suggestions, uh, pass along some ideas or thoughts or comments. I heard from Dawn Peake, who's a nurse practitioner last week, and she interviewed me for her class, and that was a, just a delightful conversation. So uh, you can email me directly, ebell at uga.edu. Um, so we'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Earl for obtaining CME credit, again, iafp.mclms.net. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. The IFP designates this podcast for one-half AMA Category 1 credit. The IAFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. You can read our complete disclosure on the AAFP website. Hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.